I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. The hottest drugs in the pharmacy are diabetes meds doing double duty for weight loss. What's the inside story? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Dr. Aaron Carroll loves data. As Associate Dean for Research Mentoring at Indiana University, he pays a lot of attention to statistics. How did his personal experience, losing weight and managing depression, influence his perspective on medications? If you've ever done homework before purchasing a smartphone, car, or coffee maker, you probably sought out objective information and reviews. How can you tell if a medicine is likely to be helpful or harmful for your health? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, Evaluating Prescription Drugs. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, flu season is underway, with many states reporting a steep increase in respiratory illness. Hospital admissions are up, especially in the southeast and south-central parts of the country. California is also experiencing a high level of flu activity. 80% of the cases were influenza A, and 20% were influenza B. The CDC estimates that there have been at least 2.6 million cases of flu this season, with 26,000 hospitalizations and 1,600 deaths. The agency is reminding people that antiviral medications can be helpful in reducing the severity of illness if taken early enough. Cases of COVID-19 are also climbing. The latest data show hospital admissions up 18 percent. More alarming, deaths are up 25 percent. Most people want to forget about COVID, but this persistent virus has not gone away. At last count, over 22,000 people were hospitalized with COVID-19. A University of Michigan national poll on healthy aging reveals that older Americans are interested in the new highly publicized obesity drugs. Three-quarters of those surveyed believe that Medicare should pay for these medications. Unfortunately, though, Medicare is prohibited by law from covering weight loss medicine. It is allowed to pay for medications for type 2 diabetes, many of which contain the exact same compound as some of the most popular weight loss drugs. Awareness of such medications was high in this poll. Nearly two-thirds of respondents had heard of Ozempic. One-fifth were familiar with the brand name Wegovy. These medications are pricey and in short supply. Many people surveyed had attempted to lose weight with diet and exercise in the past. Now that the FDA has approved herzepatide for weight loss, people are wondering how well it works. This drug has been introduced under the brand name Zepbound, and it appears to be quite effective. A study published in JAMA this week began with more than 600 individuals using terzepatide for nine months. During that time, they lost an average of about 20% of their body weight. That's quite an achievement. At that point, the investigators randomly assigned the participants to receive placebo injections or to continue with terzepatide injections. Neither the volunteers nor the researchers knew who was getting which treatment. 
A year later, almost 90% of the volunteers on terzepatide had maintained at least 80% of their initial weight loss. On average, they continued to lose weight, though at a slower rate than initially. In contrast, volunteers on placebo had regained much of the weight they had initially lost. They ended the year with an average gain of 14% of their body weight. Researchers believe that three-fourths of the cases of type 2 diabetes could be prevented with lifestyle modifications. A new analysis compared biomarkers and behavior among 113,000 participants in the UK Biobank study. This observational study lasted 12 years and included genetic data as well as markers of liver and kidney function, metabolism, inflammation, and blood lipids. People following a healthful plant-based diet with little or no ultra-processed or highly sweetened foods were 24% less likely to develop type 2 diabetes during that time as people who ate a more conventional Western-style diet. Many older people are nervous about undergoing procedures that require general anesthesia. They worry that they'll experience cognitive decline as a result. This is not an idle concern. Approximately half of apparently normal seniors do report difficulties with attention or memory following surgery. Now, scientists at Duke University have developed a test that can predict who might be most likely to experience cognitive difficulties. The Duke researchers report that a quick, preoperative electroencephalogram in which patients are asked to close, then open their eyes, is revelatory. The EEG measures brain reactivity and predicts who is most likely to have post-op problems. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. When people buy a new computer or a car, they may consult an objective source like Consumer Reports. How do doctors and patients decide which medications will work best? To help us better evaluate the pros and cons of prescription drugs, we turn to Dr. Aaron Carroll. He is a distinguished professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. Dr. Carroll is Associate Dean for Research Mentoring and Chief Health Officer of Indiana University. He's a regular contributor to Opinion and The Upshot for The New York Times. Dr. Carroll's most recent book is The Bad Food Bible, How and Why to Eat Sinfully. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Dr. Carroll, your honesty uh, blew me away because I recently read an, a guest essay for the New York Times in which you described an accident while on vacation, and, and you were airlifted to a hospital, and then you were incredibly candid about your long-running struggles against depression. How in the world did your accident change the way you thought about antidepressants? Well. You know, for a long time since residency, I, you know, struggle at points with depression. Uh, and while I've really done a reasonable job of 
controlling it through counseling. I remember back when I was a resident, both being counseled and worrying myself that there was a pretty big stigma against antidepressants that, um, and that actually having a prescription from one on file could, could hurt your chance of either getting a medical license or of practicing however you might like to. Uh, well, I thought that was unfair and ridiculous. I knew it was true. Um, and I was afraid to, to try any other medication. And, and I've done okay. But I had this experience just a couple of years ago where I was under a much greater than usual amount of stress due to illness in uh, friends and uh, my parents both getting ill and passing away and managing the pandemic here in Indiana. And I was on vacation and I was sitting at dinner and I had an absolute panic attack and did the absolute wrong thing you should do. I got up and walked away from the table thinking I should go out and be in private. Um, and I basically passed out, fell through a fence and then rolled partway down a mountain. And it was scary. My wife was absolutely panicked, although she managed it very well. But I had I had pretty bad lacerations and, and cuts across my face, which bleeds quite severely. I looked terrible. Nobody knew if I'd hurt my back or my neck. And so first, they had to get an ambulance up there, put me on a backboard, and then take me to a field where a helicopter picked me up, and they flew me to, uh, I think it was University of Tennessee Hospital. Wow. And- it was a it was a serious wake up call, um, you know, when you're belted into a helicopter, worried that you might have hurt your back or spine, and not knowing what's going on. And I had, I mean, I was not quite yet fifty. I was getting close, and I just started, you know, worrying. It was bad, and I think I realized that I was not managing my anxiety well. Uh, and when I told my doctor about it, he strongly recommended that I try medication, as did all my friends on the trip with us and my wife. And, and I did. And I'm, you know, one of the things I've always worried about with a lot of the, the medications we use for depression or anxiety is, you know, we know what SSRIs do in general. I mean, you know, they, they slow the reuptake of serotonin and therefore increase the amount of serotonin in your synaptic clefts. But we don't know why that works. We don't know why it works for some people and not others. And we know that actual serotonin levels don't necessarily correlate with changes in mood. And we know that even though you take them and it increases the amount of serotonin in your, your clefts pretty quickly, it can take weeks or more for the medications to take effect, all of which made me skeptical that they work. But they do. <laughs> and I can tell you that you know, while I'm not going to proselytize or, or say that they all work for all cases, they made a remarkable difference in my life and one that was noticed by everyone around me. I, I can remember I was in a meeting a couple months later and someone said, well, Aaron, Aaron Carroll's so optimistic today. And I was like, what? That that can't be someone talking about me. <laughs> uh, but it but it matters. And it was, and I realized, you know, that, that I was, because I know that it carries a stigma, but I think even more so because we're not quite sure how they work. I, I, I judged their use. I judged their use in myself. I thought I didn't need it. I thought I wouldn't benefit. And I think I was really mistaken. Well, of course, we look for the mechanism of any treatment that we're using. And, and we frequently hear from people 
especially about uh, home remedies or herbs, they say, ha, huh, can't possibly work. We don't know the mechanism. I think also that you had a, a, a reasonably good reason to be somewhat skeptical of an SSRI before you tried it because the randomized controlled trials have shown that that there are some questions. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But I want to go on to the next topic in that essay that we read. And that is weight and the new weight loss drugs. Uh-huh. Can you tell us about your experience? Well, it's funny. It, it felt like a very similar experience. Um, I've struggled with weight for most of my life. Um, and in the last few years, it's gotten harder and harder to prevent weight gain. Um, and I eat really well. I like, I'm very, you know, conscious of, of how I eat and when I eat. Um, and I knew I was eating significantly fewer calories than either my wife or my daughter. And I was feeling hungry and crabby and eating low calories and yet, you know, still trying to keep a, a healthy diet going. And I was exercising and nothing I did was slowing the inexorable weight gain that just kept slowly creeping up. And, and Dr. Carroll, you describe feeling like a failure. And I suspect yeah. a lot of people who struggle with their weight often feel that way. Yeah. And I, it would be frustrating because you know, my wife and daughter are very kind about it, but every time I talked about how frustrated I was, they would have a new thing for me to try, you know, try exercising even more, try eating at different times of the day, try, you know, concentrating on this macronutrient or that one. And every time I gained weight, it felt like I was failing because clearly everybody knew what to do and I couldn't pull it off. Um, and I got to the point where my BMI hit finally 30, which is obese, you know, obesity or technically obese. And although I carry it well, that was starting to really concern me because I know how many health issues are associated with obesity. And my father was morbidly obese before he passed away. And I'm sure that that contributed uh, to his death. And I just felt like I felt like a failure. It's exactly what it is. And I was frustrated and angry at myself because knowing everything I know about nutrition and about diet and about health and knowing that I was trying to do everything and still not achieving any of the goals, it felt like it must be a failing on my part that I had to be doing something wrong. And that made me angry and probably didn't affect my mental health in a good way either. And then... So I have been following, as I'm sure many, many other people have, the, the recent injectable drugs that have focused on obesity, but you know, originally with respect to diabetes. And I have been somewhat stunned because the research looks really good. Um, we've talked about you know, how drugs work and how research does, and, and, and we've talked many times about how you know, people think that, that drugs that have massive effects really in the end have pretty tiny effects and huge numbers of needed to treat. But these drugs have remarkable weight loss in randomized controlled trials that has staying power of years. And I was more and more convinced that I wanted to try one. But at the same way that 
it felt like a failure with mental health. It felt like a failure with obesity and weight gain because, again, we don't fully understand the mechanism. We don't fully understand why they work, why they might work for some people or not others. And it feels like this is something you should be able to manage on your own, that like our bodies should be built in such a way that with proper discipline and a good diet and exercise that you should maintain a healthy weight. But my frustration got to the point where I was like, I, you know, I, I got to try this. I got to just see if it makes a difference. Uh-huh. And I asked my doctor and he wrote me a, a prescription for Manjaro and Technically, because it, it's not approved for obesity, it's off-label, and I knew insurance wouldn't cover it, and I was fine with that. And as with the antidepressant, I, I've been like absolutely stunned at how much of an effect it's had. It's very difficult to explain to people who know what it's like to be full how strange it is to feel full for what feels like the first time in my life. I just don't think about food all day. I will be in the middle of a meal and be like, you know what? I've had enough. I laugh at how, you know, people always used to say, well, why don't you just not eat as much? If you know what satiety feels like, of course that sounds easy. Like, I, you know, why, how could I overeat now when I know what it's like to be full? But what's been truly stunning is I don't think my caloric intake has dropped that much. Um, because as I said before, I was restricting my calories pretty well before, but the weight has just dropped off. And what's what's even better is it's just affected, again, my whole mood and attitude and relationship with food. I don't get angry about it. I don't obsess about it. I don't think about it all the time. I am actually freer with what I eat and that I'll eat what I want. I just know I won't eat as much of it. Dr. Carroll, we have to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to ask you how much weight you lost. You're listening to Dr. Aaron Carroll, Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. His most recent book is The Bad Food Bible. After the break, we'll learn how Dr. Carroll has done on Manjaro. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, backed by 20 years of scientific research and the maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. Cocoa flavanols are among the most studied plant-based bioactives today and are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular and brain health for the long term, supporting a strong heart and better memory. Get 15% off your order of any Cocovia product by using the discount code PPOD15. Learn more at Cocovia and remember that discount code is PPOD15. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory and Focus is a unique formula made with a special blend of ingredients that work together to promote attention and support long-term memory. It supports five areas of brain performance all in one capsule. More information at cocovia.com. Ozempic and Wegovy have been in short supply for months. That's because there's so much excitement about their ability to help people lose weight. The FDA recently approved another drug for weight loss, terzepatide. The brand name is Zepbound. It's been available since last year under a different name, Monjaro. That's been approved for treating type 2 diabetes. Many people are now taking one of these GLP-1 agonists to control their blood sugar or lose weight. Our guest is among them. We're talking with Dr. Aaron Carroll, Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. He is Bicentennial Professor and Associate Dean for Research Mentoring, as well as Chief Health Officer of Indiana University. He blogs on health research and policy at The Incidental Economist and is a regular contributor to Opinion and The Upshot for The New York Times. So, Dr. Carroll, you have told us that you don't obsess about food and, and you, don't, you don't think about it very much, not like perhaps before. So how much weight did you lose on Manjaro? Well, at this point, I've lost just over 20 pounds, which is probably about 10% of my weight, which is not too atypical, I think, for what people see in the first four or five months. I mean, it's possible I might lose some more weight, but to be honest with you, I don't really care. Um, this has notched me down into a you know slightly overweight category as opposed to obesity. I feel healthier. My clothes fit better, but it's I think the biggest change has been how much of a difference this has made again with my relationship with food and how I feel about eating and and my weight. Um, that's been the the best benefit of all because I don't you know I wasn't terribly obese. I, I was just borderline obese. Um, but it it just got to be where I couldn't stop the weight gain. I couldn't maintain a healthy weight with healthy eating and. I, I promise. I know it's hard for for like you know people who don't experience this to understand. I was doing all the right things. I was eating a healthy diet. I was exercising. I was not overeating. I was being very careful, and I couldn't stop it. And now, I feel much more like a, a normal person and able to maintain a reasonably healthy weight with a good diet. That's all I ever cared about. Now, if I lose another ten pounds, great. But my goal has never been you know six pack abs or fitting into you know a tight swimsuit or anything. It's just been to be able to eat a healthy diet and, and maintain a normal healthy weight. And these drugs have made all the difference. Now, Dr. Carroll, in your essay, you point out that taking an antidepressant, taking a GLP-1 agonist like Monjaro, it's not cheating. So why no. do people think of it as if it were cheating? Is it because of the stigma of depression or weight? I think, yeah, I think partially it's the stigma. It's that it's that these are things we believe you should be able to fix on your own. 
that you should be able to, you know, mood way, you know, like think your way out of depression, think your way out of anxiety, because lots of people can. And so we think that you should be able to. And we also think the same way about, about weight, that, you know, if you eat a healthy diet and you're an active person, you should have a healthy weight. And if you're not, then that's your fault. Like you did it. You, you just weren't eating right. You're eating bad foods. You're overeating. You're eating too many French fries. Whatever it is, it's it's your fault. And if you can't do it, that that's your failure. That you don't you lack willpower. You lack self control. I also think the fact that we don't know, we don't fully understand the mechanisms of these drugs makes it it compounds the stigma. It makes it so that it even feels more like a cheat because it's not as if we're fixing something that we truly understand or some deficiency that we can say, oh well, you have diabetes. You're your uh, pancreas doesn't work. You don't have insulin. Therefore, we'll give you insulin. Or your thyroid isn't producing enough thyroid hormones. So therefore, we'll give you thyroxin. We'll we'll supplant it. Or your body, for some reason, doesn't metabolize cholesterol well. We can give you a statin that might help with that. And even statins, I think, at the beginning had that kind of stigma. But we don't understand it. And so that compounds the stigma. And then I think it's that there's even a third level of there's no end point in the sense that if I treat you for a disease, uh, you will get better. And both with the antidepressants and certainly with, with uh, the, the, the new uh, obesity drugs, there's no end point. And it feels like that there should be. And the studies, of course, are all short-term limited. Um, and therefore, when people take the drugs longer than the studies, it feels like you've gone off label. It feels like that you're now cheating and using it much, much longer than you should. And I had many people tell me, why would you take, you know, wh- aren't you worried that you're going to be on this drug for the rest of your life? You know, the second you stop taking it, you're going to gain all the weight back. And I find that to be strange. You know, I wear glasses. No one has ever asked me when my eyes are going to get better and I won't need my glasses anymore. Um, I take mercaptopurine to get some immunosuppression to control my ulcerative colitis. And nobody asked, said to me like, hey, aren't you worried about going on that drug? Because you know, if you ever take it, you're gonna, your ulcerative colitis will flare again. But when we have drugs that we don't understand and they don't have solid endpoints, I think it compounds the stigma. It, it, it feels like a crutch. And I don't care if I, I'm going to take mercaptopurine the rest of my life. I will wear glasses the rest of my life. I may be on sertraline in the rest of my life. And I may have to take some kind of either injectable or hopefully someday oral medication to help, you know, fix whatever is out of balance in me that makes me either too hungry or doesn't metabolize food the way that I should. I'm okay with that. But the whole world does not. And it unfortunately, I think, stigmatizes many of these conditions and many of the treatments that we use for them even more. Well, you know, Dr. Carroll, you mentioned that we don't always understand the mechanism uh-huh. of action of a particular pharmaceutical. And when I was in graduate school, every dang test that I had with regard to pharmacology, they'd always ask the mechanism of action. Yep. And you better be able to explain it adequately or you weren't going to do well on that exam. And, you know, I, I think to the, you know, number of 
drugs that are actually out there where we don't know the mechanism of action. And why should we hold that against them if we know that they work? Well, just imagine. Aspirin was discovered in the 19th century. Well, it was actually used as willow bark far before that. And we didn't know anything about the mechanism of action until well past the middle of the 20th century, right? Right. And I, I think there's, yeah, and I think there's drugs and conditions where we keep thinking we understand the mechanism, but then it turns out it's wrong, and we fix it and do that over and over again. Yeah. And I think about all of the, uh, the causes of acid reflux and ulcers and other issues, and how many times we've reinvented that issue. Well, I, I'd like, yeah, I'd like to share with you one that, that I just find so fascinating. It's called colchicine. And Terry, what's the plant? The plant is a crocus. I mean, colchicine is derived from saffron, which is the the stigma of the crocus plant. So 3,000 years ago, the Egyptians were using it for inflammation, for gout, for, for swollen joints. And then it was like rediscovered by modern medicine a couple of hundred years ago. And colchicine has been prescribed for a very long time, pennies a pill. Yep. And and then the FDA came up with some kind of ruling and, you know, it was an old drug and there was no well, data. Yeah. They said, you know, we haven't studied it scientifically. And all these old drugs that got grandfathered in, they need they need proper studies. So it was finally studied, and a, a brand name company brought it out as Colchris, five bucks a pill. Of course. And now there's a new a new formulation for for colchicine called Ladoco, and it's twenty bucks a pill to treat or prevent, I should say, heart attacks and strokes. So this really gets to the issue that I know is near and dear to your heart and mine randomized controlled trials. So we all worship at that fountain. It's the gold standard, and it's designed to reduce what we'll say is suggestibility. So neither the doctors who administer the medications or the patients who receive the medications know whether they're getting a placebo or the active drug. But here's a a compound that's been used for 3,000 years isn't experience worth something? So, yes, we all love our CTs, randomized controlled trials, but we have a home remedy. It's called ground black pepper. So if you cut yourself in the kitchen and you're bleeding and you put a little finely ground black pepper on that cut and it stops bleeding within 10 seconds, do you really need a randomized control trial? Isn't evidence or experience worth something? I mean, it, I think it's definitely worth something. I think when, and I think, you know, if people, I often say like, I try very, very hard not to yuck someone's yum. If something works for you, I'm thrilled. Like, I don't need to talk you out of it. I don't feel the need to, and I don't know whether you're getting a real benefit or whether you're getting a placebo benefit. I don't care. I want to weigh risks and harms. And if the risk of what you're trying is very low and, and, and I consider cost to be a harm and therefore if the cost isn't, I think go ahead. I, I will sometimes bristle when people start telling others they have to or must do it or start charging for it um, when it hasn't been proven to work because now you know that, that is either bringing in a harm or, or at least an inconvenience. 
But, you know, if something works and it's easy, why not? Like, sure, go ahead. But I also think it's, you know, it's one of those points is that the randomized controlled trial can tell us if it works. It doesn't tell us how it works. Right. And we do this all the time. Like we we do a randomized controlled trial and we go approved. But that doesn't mean we know how it works. Uh, and I, I almost want to even go back to where you were saying and how much we're forced to learn mechanism in med school. I used to feel that way about my pharmacology course so much. Like I spent so much time learning the mechanism of action of every antibiotic when I wish someone would have just sat down and spent an equal amount of time telling me, oh, just use this antibiotic for these things and that antibiotic for those things and why, as opposed to having to remember if it was bacterial static or bacterial cytal or how it died. Who cares? Like I, that wasn't going to be important for my practice. <laughs> but, you know, we, 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 we push on, we need to understand why. And I, that is so necessary sometimes to make breakthroughs but often breakthroughs occur without our understanding why. And sometimes we make up a mechanism of action because I remember being taught about diuretics mm -hmm. and in particular thiazide diuretics like hydrochlorothiazide and how they work to lower blood pressure. And it was like, well, it's a diuretic. It, it gets rid of fluid. Yeah, but, but your body adjusts. Yeah. Why does that lower blood pressure, right? Yeah. I, again, like I, part of me, I don't know, but I also know I don't care. Like they work. And if like we do randomized controlled trials and we look for harms and we look for side effects and we're careful about it and we figure out that it works, I'm, I'm just thrilled that it works. I'm a th thrilled that it's safe and effective. But I think, and maybe, the, you know, we've talked, I think before about medical myths. I just think human beings sometimes need and want stories. They need explanations. And if we can't give them an explanation, they make one up, um, which is how we wind up believing stuff that turns out not to be true. But if we can't figure it out and we believe that it's a moral failing in some way that you should be able to control it, then it feels like it, that we, we treat the drug or we treat the treatment like it's cheating. And that that just is so detrimental to so many people's health and ability to improve their lives. And then we are doing harm to the people who are refraining from using something that could help them because they feel like it's cheating. I would like to talk a little bit more about randomized controlled trials. We should probably just just briefly review why they're so important, why they're such a valuable tool. But I also want to talk about the shortcomings of a randomized controlled trial in uncovering uh, harms because we frequently don't learn about the harms until much later after the primary randomized controlled trials have been done. Absolutely. I mean, while, while we might do, you know, even tens of thousands of people on a randomized controlled trial, something that is a, a rare or potentially damaging side effect might not show up until, uh, you know, much larger or widespread use. Or it may be, I mean, this was a problem with, with drugs decades ago, if you don't, for instance, put pregnant women in the trial, you don't know what the effects are on a, on a growing fetus. And there were drugs approved and used that when they started to use them in pregnant women caused horrific side effects. There are lots of variables that still cannot be accounted for. Uh, you know, I would say the randomized control trials, in some ways, the floor, not the ceiling, to say we believe that this is safe and effective. But there's so many other factors, including how people will actually use it in real life how they might use it differently, how the population studied might differ from the populations that wind up using the drug. Uh, 
how it might change over time or you know be experienced by larger and larger groups of people all of this matters and we absolutely need to follow drugs after they're approved and after they've begun marketing because we may pick up on things we missed during the relatively small number of, of people that were, were using it in a trial. So, Dr. Carroll, here's a perfect example. Statins. I mean, at last count, like 40 million Americans are taking statins. And when they were first approved, there weren't really that many side effects that were detected. And one in particular, elevations in blood glucose and sometimes diabetes in people who didn't have diabetes. We didn't discover that until what was called the Jupiter trial, which was many years after they were introduced. And even to this day, there are some physicians who keep telling me, oh, no, 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 it doesn't really happen. But it's, but it's a reality. It, it, it's not something that should cause people a great deal of distress, but it is a possible side effect that we didn't detect in the early randomized controlled trials. Yeah, absolutely. And this is exactly, again, why we need to do you know, post-marketing follow-up and, and still keep track of things that are developing. I can think of a number of drugs that were approved and then years later, or sometimes even more, were discovered to be problematic or had uh, side effects or long-term sequelae that wound up being significant problems. You're, you just can't find out everything in thousands of people over the course of six months to two years when, when real life is much, much longer. You're listening to Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. He's Bicentennial Professor and Associate Dean for Research Mentoring, as well as Chief Health Officer of Indiana University. Dr. Carroll blogs on health research and policy at The Incidental Economist and is a regular contributor to Opinion and The Upshot for The New York Times. After the break... Why don't we have the same detailed pro and con information on drugs that we have on cars or toasters? We'll also find out what the NNT and the NNH mean and why these measures are helpful. When we look at the number needed to treat for statins and preventing heart attacks in healthy people, it's not that impressive. What is the difference between relative risk reduction and absolute risk reduction, and why is that important? Dr. Carroll will offer his advice on weighing benefits and risks and making smart choices. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. 
Cocovia Memory Plus is formulated with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols, a level clinically proven to improve three different types of memory and support brain function. More information at cocovia.com. If you listen to the People's Pharmacy, you've probably heard us rant about relative risk reduction versus absolute risk reduction. One number makes a medicine look fabulous, but it can be misleading. When you read a headline or listen to a newscast about a new medicine that reduces your risk of some terrible health problem by 30%, it seems fantastic. But a number like that is usually a relative risk. The absolute risk reduction can be modest at best. To learn more about the difference in these numbers and how to use them to make wise decisions, we're talking with Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. Dr. Carroll is Bicentennial Professor and Associate Dean for Research Mentoring, as well as Chief Health Officer of Indiana University. Dr. Carroll, when it comes to determining how effective or how dangerous a drug is, we don't have the kind of information that we would like when it comes to other consumer products. So if you're going to buy, let's say, a car or a vacuum cleaner or a smartphone, you might go to a rating system, something like Consumer Reports, where they don't take advertising and where they try to do testing. It's what I'd call objective, so that they might give you a a, a number that would say, okay, you, you want to buy a Toyota Camry, a hybrid, well, that comes in at a at an 80. And if you want to buy Brand X, it comes in at a 68. And you can go, well, you know, the, the, the Toyota costs more, but, but it's more reliable or it's safer or whatever the value is that you place in the car. It, it gets great fuel mileage. So we have something to base our decisions on. When it comes to pharmaceuticals, we don't have such an easy rating system where a doctor or a patient could go, oh yeah, that drug works in one out of five people and it causes side effects in one out of 30 people. That sounds like a pretty good equation. I'll be happy to take that medication. It brings us to the NNT and the NNH. Can you help us understand why that might be beneficial in evaluating pharmaceuticals? Well, I, I think that that's, yeah, no, yes. So let's start with, with what those numbers mean. You know, when we say something is effective, of course, it's a term that it needs a lot more definition. So in every time there's a trial, they have to say specifically, this is what we mean by effectiveness, that blood pressure drops by a certain amount or that, uh, you know, fever disappears in a certain amount of time or cancer is cured in a certain percentage of people. That is what we might mean to be effective. But of course, not everyone experiences that. Lots of people that take the drug would have gotten better anyway, which is whether it's placebo effect or, or whether it's something else. Some people don't get any benefit at all. There's just some number of people that experience that effect. And the more effective the drug is, the fewer people that will have to take it to see an effect. So I think most people probably imagine that if they take a drug, there's a pretty high percentage chance that, that they're going to get better. 
but people would be shocked at how rarely that is the case. So if we have a drug, let's say it's uh, statins, and we're trying to see like, can we prevent heart attack with statins? And we take a thousand people. Um, it's it's something like 999 of them are unaffected. Maybe one out of a thousand is affected, meaning you need to treat a thousand people for one person to have that effect. That's actually not too far off from where statins likely really are. Um, and that's like horrifying when people like hear that. It is horrifying. What what we've the numbers we've seen are closer to 99 people out of 100 are taking the drug for one person to have a, a benefit. And if if there are people that already have heart disease, maybe 80 of them need to take a drug for the, the, a statin yeah. for one of them to have an impact. It's still a lot of people and a lot of people who whose insurance companies hopefully are paying for the statin or who are being exposed to potential side effects. Now, of course, many doctors tell us, well, the side effects of statins, they're not all that important. But if you're experiencing a side effect, a friend of ours told us the other day that while he was on a statin, he couldn't think. He had brain fog. And once he stopped, the brain fog cleared up. Yep. Well, am I going to tell him that wasn't his experience? And so I, the way I actually, when I practice more, the way I used to talk about antibiotics to parents for uh, whether they wanted, when they wanted them for their, their child who had an ear infection, um, was using exactly this kind of frame. And so while we just said there was number needed to treat, the same thing as number needed to harm. In other words, how many people need to be treated for one person to have a side effect? And so if a child looked well and had an ear infection and a parent wanted antibiotics, I would say, okay, well, here's the thing. If you're trying to prevent spread from one ear to the other, antibiotics cannot do that. Like the number needed to treat is like an infinity. If you're looking to say, you know, I'm trying to prevent rupture of the eardrum, it's like it barely makes a difference. Um, if you're saying, I really want my child to have no pain, tomorrow, the antibiotic won't do that either. What the antibiotic might do is reduce the length of time that your child is in pain from a week to slightly less than a week. And the number that I need to treat is 20. So 19 out of 20 kids that I give this antibiotic to will have no effect. One of them might feel a little bit better within a week. And they might start nodding and saying, oh, well, I still want to do that. I'd say, but the number needed to harm with respect to having bad diarrhea or a rash, or some other side effect is about half that. Meaning if I give you this antibiotic, you're twice as likely to have a side effect as to have this tiny benefit that you know wasn't really what you were looking for anyway. And they're like, well, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, you want pain relief. I can give you some drops that'll do pain relief or take some you know, Advil or, or, or Tylenol. That's how you get pain relief. This is likely going to get better. But, but framing it with this is the number that are going to see a benefit. This is the number going to see a harm. Changes the equation. That rarely gets discussed. The USPSTF just did that recently with respect to uh, prostate cancer a few years ago. And again, it's stunning where they talk about prostate screening and the number uh, that they need to treat to prevent a death is like a thousand. But the number that they need to treat to have one man either be impotent or incontinent or both is so much lower that it's not unreasonable to say, I might just want to wait if you have few risk factors. Well, you know, this brings up a whole issue around what we call the 
relative risk reduction versus the absolute risk reduction. And I know we've talked about this in the past, but I don't think we can talk about it too much. Do I need to put out a nerd alert for our uh, listeners? Yeah, probably you do. But here's the thing. The Food and Drug Administration had a commissioner a few years back by the name of Dr. Stephen Hahn. And he fell into this trap because he described the benefits of something called convalescent plasma against COVID-19. And in his announcement, he said 35 patients out of 100 could be saved, saved, their lives saved if they got plasma transfusions from someone who had recovered from a very bad case of COVID. Yeah. Now, that sounded great, and I think a lot of people were going, well, sign me up if I get COVID. I want that convalescent plasma. Well, it was totally misleading because there was no placebo arm. The people in this trial, three days after being hospitalized with COVID, they either got intravenous plasma or they were compared to people who had to wait 30 days. And the difference was 9% who died after three days versus 12% who died after the delayed plasma infusion. Hardly a 35 out of 100. So the actual difference between them was three out of 100. Exactly. And he completely got it wrong and described it as, you know, a, a... absolute risk when it was really a relative risk. So for our listeners, maybe you could sum up why that difference is so important. Because because that actually is how we calculate the number needed to treat. So whenever so if, if there's something that has a 100% chance of killing you, and I reduce it to 50%, that sounds like a 50% reduction. But if a, something has a 0. 0.00004 percent chance of killing you and I reduce it to 0.00002 percent that is also a 50 percent relative reduction except you really care about the first one and the second one you might not notice at all where they differ is in their absolute risk reduction where in the first one the absolute risk was 50 percent and in the second one the absolute risk reduction was 0.00002 percent and you calculate number needed to treat by taking a hundred and dividing it by the absolute risk reduction. So in the first one, 100 divided by 50% risk reduction, that's two. I only need to treat two people for one of them to get the benefit because I went from two out of two people dying to one out of two people dying. In the second one, the number needed to treat would be 100 divided by 0.0000002. It's going to be an enormous number. You're going to need to treat probably millions of people for one of them to see a benefit. And so even on the example you gave, 35% sounds huge. That would be like one out of three people. But in reality, it was a 3% absolute reduction. The number needed to treat would be, if it's true, one out of 30 or 35. Those are huge differences. And so many drugs have an absolute risk reduction that's so low that the number needed to treat is thousands or more to get the benefit we're really shooting for. So, Dr. Carroll, if I am accepting a prescription from my doctor, and I don't know anything about this medication, is it reasonable for me to ask the doctor, what is the number needed to treat? What can I expect from this drug? Yeah, what are, the, what are the chances that I, Joe, will get some benefit? 
Yeah, I, I would ask, I would wager that most doctors won't have that information on in our hand or actually, you know, think about it because part of it is also like, well, what are you expecting to get out of it? Because if you take a statin, it's very different to say like, well, I want my cholesterol to drop. But what we really want is I don't want to have a heart attack. And so if they answer the question based upon what well, your cholesterol might drop, that's a different number that's needed to treat than what we really care about, which is, are you going to have a reduce in heart disease? Um, when I say thousands of people, it's reduction in in like heart attacks or heart disease. But a lot of people don't think of it that way. They have to get about like, oh, well, my cholesterol went down 10 points. It's a, it's a success. But that wasn't the marker in the study. The study was done to prevent heart disease. You know, just having your cholesterol drop is a process measure. Uh, it's not a hard outcome, but that's what most people think about. And even if they were, I doubt most doctors have that kind of information on hand to be able to answer that question for you. So how would a patient or even a physician who is trying to do the right thing go about figuring the benefits versus the risks for any given patient? And we don't have a consumer reports for statins or for blood pressure pills or for any other medication for that matter, but we want to be quantitative. We want to be scientific like Dr. Carroll. So how do we make decisions? <laughs> well, there are some websites. I mean, part of it is, and this is going to sound terrible, is like, I mean, what do I do? I usually go look up the study and calculate the absolute risk reduction, where it's the first thing I ask about whenever I read any news about, about health. And in fact, there's a talk I love to give on the ways we can improve health reporting. And number one is, you know, talk about the absolute risk and not the relative risk. That's never done. Um, well, it's, it's not only it's it's frustratingly not only, rare. So frustrating. It's, 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 so it's, it's rare, not only in newspapers where you see this headline, 46% risk reduction of X. And you go, yeah, but what's the absolute risk reduction? They never tell you that because it's not sexy. But even medical journals don't always tell you up front what the absolute risk reduction is. Yeah. I mean, even in the studies and certainly in the press releases for the studies, they're almost always pushing forward the relative risk, because that's the one that always sounds big. But when things in general are pretty rare to begin with, even if you make a difference, it still takes tons and tons and tons of people to find that statistically different, you know, statistically significant difference. But we don't think that way when we treat. We just think about ourselves. And we just don't know if we're going to be the person that gets the benefit versus the other, you know, sometimes hundreds, if not thousands of people who do not. Now, when the risk is incredibly low, that's okay. But if the risk is high, that's a problem because you get, you have a, you know, the chance of getting the, the harm or the side effect no matter what. But you may be one of the very few that have the benefit. So I wish we thought more along those lines. I wish doctors as well thought more along those lines. It's just not how most people are wired. And I think we're worse off for it. What advice can you offer our listeners for making smart choices and weighing the benefits and the risks? I always say that you need to weigh every medical decision, every medical decision should be benefits versus harms. If the harms are minimal or really not something you're concerned about and the benefit is something that you want and you can sort of weigh the, the pros and cons, then that sounds reasonable. But if the benefits are questionable and harms are real, and I include, again, costs sometimes in harms, then it's something you ought to really 
push your healthcare provider or your physician about about like wh- what are what are the actual benefits? How likely am I actually to see this? Uh, should I be taking it? Like, am I going to get enough juice for the squeeze, or am I going to? Are the harms great enough that this isn't worth it? The side effects great enough that this isn't worth it? Sometimes that's a very personal decision, and that can't be just done by an algorithm, because what matters to people differs, and how much the benefits matter and how much the harms matter are real. If I can give just one personal example, again, I take a I take mercaptopurine for my ulcerative colitis. It has a greater than zero, not very large, but but some greater than zero chance of causing aplastic anemia, of shutting down my blood, or my, my bone marrow, I'm sorry. And so every three months, I have to get my blood drawn and, and things checked. And my wife is panicked by this. And she's like, why would you take this drug? And I'm like, because the benefits and the, the absolute you know, life-changing quality of life that I have for having my ulcerative colitis controlled is worth this very small chance of a bad effect. Other people might feel differently, but I'm willing to take it. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Dr. Aaron Carroll. He is Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. He's Bicentennial Professor and Associate Dean for Research Mentoring, as well as Chief Health Officer of Indiana University. He blogs on health research and policy at The Incidental Economist and is a regular contributor to Opinion and The Upshot for The New York Times. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocoa Via Dietary Supplements, cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health, made with a tested, concentrated flavanol extract. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,367. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. You can also reach us through email. Radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter and get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you also get regular access to information about our weekly podcast so you can find out ahead of time what topics we're covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please do join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. 
Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.